You're listening to Girls Got Game, Episode 3, The Workplace and Gamergate. Please be aware that this episode contains descriptions of online harassment and abuse, as well as explicit language that may be upsetting to some listeners. Thank you. If we're going off of sheer numbers, the representation of women in game development is pretty abysmal. According to a survey by the International Game Developers Association in 2005, only 11.5% of game developers were female. By 2017, that number had increased, but to 21%. A 2017 internal memo at Activision Blizzard that detailed efforts to hire and retain more women produced the same percentage of female employees. The environment in which games are made is not very friendly. It is not supportive of long-term employment, so more and more jobs have fallen into the category of contract work, which leaves the promise of stability by the wayside. In the Game Developer Conference's State of the Industry survey from 2018, only 13% of respondents had been involved in the industry for 11 to 13 years. The largest portion of respondents, 32%, had been involved for 3 to 6 years. Careers in game development don't seem to last much longer. Add to this the knowledge that there are few females in game development, the negative stereotypes associated with the gaming industry, the scandals in recent years, and gendered pay inequality, and it's no wonder why there aren't more women in gaming. The internet has also provided fans with greater access to developers than ever before, leading some developers to struggle with their unexpected and often unwanted rise to stardom. As Amanda Cody said in the last episode, video games have stereotypically been regarded as a male domain. Dozens of other video game scholars can attest to this. Researcher and professor Dr. Kishona Gray, head of Feminist Frequency Anita Sarkeesian, PhD candidate Kate Miltner, and Professor Bridget Blodgett are only a few. Certainly there have been notable female game developers over the years, but they number so few and far between that they're regarded as unicorns. And, in light of the scandals and problems with the industry, it's not too difficult to understand why. I'm Riley Fitz, and welcome to Girls Got Game. In spite of the fact that there are few female game developers in general, that hasn't stopped influential female game designers from making their mark. Perhaps two of the most famous of these are Carol Shaw and Dona Bailey. From 1978 to 1980, Carol Shaw worked for the relatively new company Atari. There, she helped to develop a number of games as a microprocessor software engineer and the only woman on her team. Shaw left Atari in 1980 and was recruited to Activision in 1982, where she developed River Raid, the most successful game of her career, and one of the first to be created by a woman. Dona Bailey joined Atari just as Carol Shaw left. Bailey developed the popular arcade game Centipede in 1981. Centipede is regarded as an arcade classic today. It was unique for using a trackball to control game movements and for its pastel color palette 
both of which Bailey described as being happy accidents in answers to questions from Reddit users in 2017. Jonah Bailey, like Carol Shaw, was the only woman on her development team at the time. She left Atari in 1982, and gaming altogether in 1985 to be a programmer for other industries. Brenda Laurel, a designer, programmer, and later a researcher into interactivity and immersive media at Atari Systems Research Laboratory, worked to create games for girls in the 1990s. Laurel was one of the first to toy with the idea of a first-person experience in games in the 1980s. In the 1990s, while working for the Interval Research Corporation, she, quote, led a four-year research and development effort to understand the relationship between gender and technology among children and teens, end quote. This effort, which included interviewing over 1,000 girls in eight different cities, concluded that girls were, in fact, interested in video games. No one at the time thought that this was the case, and no one wanted to take a chance on that market. As stated in the last episode, during the 1980s, the market had begun to skew in demographics to target young males exclusively. On the rare occasion that a girl's video game was made, developers would frequently just simplify the gameplay. Because, as Laurel states in her book Utopian Entrepreneur, quote, everyone knows that girls aren't good at shooting games, so the designers reasoned that the game should just make it easier for them. The brilliant solution? Make projectiles that move slowly. End quote. Purple Moon, co-founded by Brenda Laurel, took a risk on girls' games. Purple Moon was a studio that released a number of successful titles, but in 1999, its investors shifted their focus to internet content and pulled their funding. Purple Moon was forced to close its studio, and Laurel moved on to pursue academia. Even today, Games for girls are not taken as seriously as games for boys. Part of this has to do with the pervasive idea that video games only appeal to a narrow male demographic, but another part has to do with the lack of female developers. In 2012, Kickstarter employee Luke Crane tweeted, Why are there so few lady gamers? This sparked the hashtag One Reason Why campaign on Twitter. This hashtag is clever as it has a double meaning. The pound symbol, which can be read as the word hashtag, can also be read as number. As stated by Kotaku, quote, the tag's name is meant to suggest people are listing the number one reason why there aren't more women making games, end quote. Here are some examples of testimonies from women involved in the games industry. From Sarah Grissom, because the metrics team was shocked to discover that girls liked our game at all. We weren't even trying for that demographic. From Gabrielle Kent, once heard an art manager say, we don't need any more women. They're more trouble than they're worth, as he viewed applications. From Brit, my number one reason why? Because to most of my coworkers, anything women enjoy is a total joke. Our studio makes games targeted at women. From Katarina Fake, co-founder of the online image service Flickr, being mistaken for a male co-founder's assistant three times? Four? Hashtag one reason why. The situation still hadn't improved six years later. In August of 2018, 
Kotaku published an article detailing the sexist attitudes at Riot Games. Riot Games is the studio behind the popular MOBA League of Legends. Several of the individuals interviewed for this piece asked not to be identified, citing concerns about non-disparagement agreements and future employment opportunities. A quote from this article reads, Among the people we spoke to, three women described being groomed for promotions and doing jobs above their title and pay grade until men were suddenly brought in to replace them. Both male and female sources have described seeing unsolicited and unwelcome pictures of male genitalia from bosses or colleagues. One woman saw an email thread about what it would be like to penetrate her, in which a colleague added that she'd be a good target to sleep with and not call again. Another said a colleague once informed her, apparently as a compliment, that she was on a list getting passed around by senior leaders detailing who they'd sleep with. This feature piece, entitled Inside the Culture of Sexism at Riot Games, can be found on Kotaku's website. It goes into far more detail about the core gaming culture at Riot Games than I have the time to in this podcast. I encourage you to check it out. Work can be a place of unwelcome experiences for some developers, but those experiences can also follow them home. Game players, like sports and other media fans, are very particular about their objects of affection. This affection and shared interest leads to the creation of online communities dedicated to that interest. Usually, these communities are rather benign, but every now and then they can morph into something a bit more scary. According to the students of Professor Ross Hainfler at Grinnell College, quote, fan culture, or fandom, is a term which describes communities built around a shared enjoyment of an aspect of popular culture, such as books, movies, TV shows, bands, sports or sports teams, etc. End quote. The internet facilitated the creation of fandoms and fandom culture through the simplified connectivity possible online. Senior writer for BioWare, the game studio that produced the Dragon Age series, Jennifer Brandis Hepler, caught the attention of the Dragon Age fandom in 2012 following the release of Dragon Age 2. This game introduced a new mechanic that allowed players to bypass the combat requirements of the game in order to more quickly engage with the story. A vocal minority of fans of the series, however, found this change off-putting. They felt that this diminished the quality and achievement associated with beating the game. They also took issue with more romantic subplots that were included in this game. So, some persistent members of the fandom dug through the internet and found an interview that Hepler gave from 2006. In this interview, she explained that her least favorite part of video games was the combat, as not everybody has the time on their hands to play through over 100 hours of an RPG. An option to skip combat would allow fans with less time on their hands to derive the same level of enjoyment out of the games as those who are equally devoted to the battle mechanics. The fans concluded that Hepler was responsible for the changes to the gameplay introduced in Dragon Age 2, as well as the romantic subplots that some fans disliked. A post appeared on the Dragon Age forums that claimed Hepler was the cancer-destroying Bioware. She became a target of vicious internet harassment. In an interview she gave to Polygon, Hepler said, quote, 
I was shown a sample of the forum posts by EA Security, and it included graphic threats to kill my children on their way out of school to show them that they should have been aborted at birth rather than have to have me as a mother, end quote. Polygon detailed this incident and others in an article from 2013 titled Plague of Developer Harassment Erodes Industry, Spurring Support Groups. This article details the harassment to which game developers are at some times subjected. Quote, Developers, both named and those who wish to remain anonymous, tell Polygon that harassment by gamers is becoming an alarmingly regular, expected element of game development. Some developers say the problem was among the reasons they left the industry. Others tell Polygon that the problem is so ubiquitous that it distracts them from making games, or that they're considering leaving the industry." End quote. Dr. Nathan Fisk, who was interviewed by Polygon for this article, stated, quote, In particular, I think that the game developers, more recently independent developers, are struggling with becoming public figures. I also suspect that problems with online harassment have long been a problem for the gaming industry, but with the level of visibility provided by platforms such as Twitter and the growing public concern over various forms of harassment among gamers, that industry representatives are no longer willing to quietly ignore harassing or threatening comments." End quote. In her book, Hate Crimes in Cyberspace, Danielle Keats Citron describes how cyber mobs gain traction and power, as well as ways in which lawmakers need to address instances of harassment and abuse. She explains that cyber harassment impacts women in a manner disproportionate to men. Quote, the U.S. National Violence Against Women survey reports that 60% of cyber-stalking victims are women, and the National Center for Victims of Crimes estimates that the rate is 70%. For over a decade, Working to Halt Online Abuse, or WOE, has collected information from cyber harassment victims. Of the 3,393 individuals reporting cyber harassment to WOE, Quote, the U.S. National Violence Against Women survey reports that 60% of cyber-stalking victims are women, and the National Center for Victims of Crimes estimates that the rate is 70%. For over a decade, Working to Halt Online Abuse, or WOE, has collected information from cyber harassment victims. Of the 3,393 individuals reporting cyber harassment to WOE, from 2000 to 2011, 72.5% were female and 22.5% were male. 5% were unknown." End quote. In 2013, independent game developer Zoe Quinn released her game Depression Quest, which cataloged some of her experiences with depression. She hoped to use the medium of video games to tell an interactive story about mental illness. The game began to grow popular as more and more sympathizers and depression sufferers related to the game and felt validated by the experience of playing. However, critics harassed her for creating a game that broke conventional molds about what they believed a video game should look like. In 2014, Quinn found herself in the crosshairs of an internet cyber mob following the libelous posting of a manifesto on the part of her abusive ex-boyfriend. 
Her ex-boyfriend claimed that she had cheated on him and slept with five others, one of whom was a Kotaku writer for good reviews on Depression Quest. This never happened. The false narrative came out at just the right time to capitalize on a widespread backlash against women breaking into the games industry. Some reporters have described this phenomenon as growing pains occurring as the industry tries to diversify, but these growing pains have uprooted some women's lives. But also at the same time, there was a prevalent hostility towards what some individuals considered dishonest games journalism. The claims of Quinn's ex-boyfriend latched onto both grievances. The manifesto was posted on 4chan, a forum known for user anonymity and general lawlessness. Users latched onto the lies and initiated a coordinated harassment campaign against her. This campaign culminated in threats of violence, death threats, rape threats, the hacking of her personal accounts, the release of her private information online in a process known as doxing, threatening phone calls to her friends and family, revenge porn, and even the placement of dead animals in her mailbox. Quinn was forced to leave her home and stay with friends for months, and the whole ordeal took a toll on her mental health. Even when Quinn went to the police with evidence of the abuse, she received no help. There was no support system or plan of action for her situation. Like Danielle Keats Citron discusses in Hate Crimes in Cyberspace, Quinn discovered that there was limited legal recourse for victims of coordinated cyber harassment campaigns. Police may not fully understand the dangers of having one's personal information in the hands of a virtual mob, but the anonymity afforded by the internet also makes it impossible to identify aggressors. One anonymous poster said, quote, Next time she shows up at a con or press conference or whatever, we move. We'll outnumber everyone. Nobody will suspect us because we'll be everywhere. We don't move to kill, but give her a crippling injury that's never going to fully heal and remind her of her fuck-up for life. A good solid injury to the knees is usually good for this. I'd say brain damage, but we don't want to make it so she ends up too retarded to fear and respect us. End quote. Quinn had to be escorted by security to the public speaking engagements to which she was already committed. Quinn would go on to create a foundation to help other survivors of online abuse. Crash Override, which is also the name of her book recounting her experience, is a crisis helpline for those experiencing online abuse. In 2012, game critic Anita Sarkeesian launched her Kickstarter campaign to crowdsource funds for her online video series titled Tropes vs. Women in Video Games. She hoped to, in her own words, explore, analyze, and deconstruct some of the most common tropes and stereotypes of female characters in games. Sarkeesian's series was immediately bombarded with harassing comments and spam. Although the fundraiser reached its goal in less than a day, the hate never stopped. Sarkeesian's Wikipedia page was repeatedly vandalized over the course of just two days until it was locked by Wikipedia so only registered users could make changes. She received threats of violence, death, sexual assault, and rape. To this day, the harassment hasn't completely stopped. Sarkeesian went underground during the events of Gamergate and had to cancel a talk at a university due to a bomb threat against the venue for hosting her. Speaking of venues, 
A frequent staple of gaming conventions, whether for fans or developers, are promotional models. Also called booth babes, promotional models are frequently women hired to work at the front of a company's booth. They have been used to draw attention to products they're representing for years, usually while wearing skimpy clothing. The Consumer Electronics Show, held in Las Vegas, or CES, used promotional models at its first show in 1967. It became common practice and only came under fire in the 1990s, when E3, the Electronic Entertainment Expo, was criticized for the revealing clothing that some promotional models wore, it began to enforce regulations surrounding nudity and partial nudity on the show floor. Penny Arcade Expo, or PAX, and other conventions have followed suit. PAX stated, Booth babes are defined as staff of any gender used by exhibitors to promote their products at PAX by using overtly sexual or suggestive methods. One argument against booth babes is, quote, What you end up with is the situation where you, as a conference goer, walk up to a booth and, because you're no stranger to how this works, ignore any attractive female and talk directly to a male at the booth. You assume immediately that any attractive female is there simply for their physical appearance, not for the value that their knowledge brings. This is wrong on every level, and it's an insidious form of objectifying women. It happens gradually, over time, and the more booth babes you see, the more ingrained it becomes." End quote. That was Matt Simmons, writer for standalone sysadmins. Booth babes have begun to disappear in recent years, much to the disappointment and protest of some male fans. When PAX originally announced the ban in 2012, there was a large public outcry, but it has since died down. If a female developer attended a conference like PAX, it's possible she'll be mistaken for a promotional model. Often, women who attend conventions, whether as fans, promotional models, or developers, are groped or harassed. This happens even more often if they are expressing their love for a type of media through cosplay, or dressing up as a character from a game or anime that they like. This problem became so widespread that PACs and other conventions had to include provisions in their codes of conduct against sexual harassment, including defining actions that could be considered harassing behaviors. So, if the game development environment is so toxic toward women, why do they stay? Well, in spite of the problems with the industry and against cultural expectations, women love games. They love creating games and they are passionate about their interests. If they all left, there would be no women to fight for the next generation of female developers. David Gator, a writer for BioWare who worked on the plot of Dragon Age, made an important argument regarding the necessity of women in game development in a Tumblr post from 2015. Gator stated, quote, we were sitting down to peer review a plot, a peer review being the point where a plot has had its first writing pass completed, and whoever wrote it sits down with the other writers, as well as representatives from cinematic design, editing, and level art to hear critique. We've all read it first and written down our thoughts and go around the table to relate any issues we encountered. As it happened, most of the guys went first. Typical stuff, some stuff was good, some stuff needed work, etc., etc. Then one of the female writers went, and she brought up an issue. A big issue. It had to do with a sexual situation in the plot, 
which she explained could easily be interpreted as a form of rape. It wasn't intended that way. In fact, the writer of the plot was mortified. The intention was that it come across as creepy and subverting, but authorial intention is often irrelevant, and we must always consider how what we write will be interpreted. In this case, it was not a long trip for the person playing through the plot to see what was happening at a slightly different angle, and it was no longer good creepy. It was bad creepy. It was discomforting and not cool at all. And this female writer was not alone. All the other women at the table nodded their heads and had noted the same thing in their critiques. So we discussed it, changes were made, and everything was better. Crisis averted. If this had been a team with no female perspective present, it would have gone into the game that way. End quote. Women are here to stay, and they're changing the games industry for the better. Strong female role models like Anita Sarkeesian, who persevered in games journalism, and Kim Swift, who helped create Valve's 2007 hit game Portal, are inspirations to young women who are interested in this field. In the next episode, I will talk more about the communities that surround video games and the gaming identity, as well as some of the actions game developers are taking to combat in-game harassment and toxicity. Thank you for listening to Girls Got Game. I'm Riley Fitz. Take care and see you next time. You're listening to Girls Got Game. This podcast was developed as an undergraduate thesis by Riley Fitz. For the sources consulted and presented in this episode, please check out my SoundCloud, 